This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. This episode kicks off a special mini-series where we are going to talk about life sciences consulting. Our guest today is Tyler Burns, CEO and founder at Burns Life Sciences Consulting. Tyler and I go way back to graduate school, like really a long time ago. We're both old farts, just kidding. I used to always work on a <laughs> treadmill in one of the med school buildings where we went to graduate school and he would hop on a bike and we talk about research, Python. So it is just super amazing to catch up all these years later and learn about what you're up to, Tyler. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's get started. I had a fairly superficial view of what you were doing during your training at Stanford. So maybe let's start with this area of background. What did you do before Stanford? How did you wind up there? And what did you do there? Before Stanford grad school, at least, I was an undergrad at Stanford studying human biology. I was a well-lab person up till the age of 28. So I studied human biology at Stanford. I was actually pre-med wanted to be a doctor, just like every biology major starting out. And then at some point I decided against it, wanted to um, go into research. Originally, I wanted to be an MD, PhD, like do clinical work and research. But then I realized that I, I would only have the energy for one of those. So then I, I decided I was going to go the research route. Spent a couple of years in Michigan as a lab tech, kind of bolstering my resume, if you want to call it that before getting back into Stanford for grad school and in the cancer biology department. This was 2011. And basically around that time, the, the buzzword systems biology was really kind of starting to ramp up. Everything was, you know, genomics, proteomics, connectomics, viromics, you name it, just uh, attach the word omic to the end of it. It was really exciting times. I joined a lab a uh, lab of Gary Nolan, who was doing a new kind of single cell analysis where you could simply in human blood or similar uh, specimens, look at many, many more things at a given time. And that produced so-called higher dimensional data sets that required a computer to analyze them. So anyway, but I was on the wet side of that. And I wanted to learn how to write code. I barely even knew what coding was at the time, to be honest with you. You know, I took a genomics class in 2012 that had a bioinformatic component. I don't know if I talked to you about this one, but basically it was in Perl. It was the year before they changed to Python, which made it a little bit easier. But while I thought it was really cool, it was simply too fast for me because I didn't have the background. You know, when I started, I could barely, you know, I'd been clicking around. I could barely find my way around the command line and, you know, for that, learn how to code on top of that. And so it was a very, very stressful experience and it put a kind of sour taste in my mouth. But let me back up, actually, because there's a component here that I think is important so if we roll back the clock to when I'm 16, I don't remember exactly when it was, It was, but it was pretty late at night and I was just browsing the internet 
And I came across something called Conway's Game of Life, a basic grid of two states on and off. And each square in the grid follows a particular set of rules, like neighbor-based rules that tell it whether it is going to be on or off. And it's just a few simple rules. And that creates really, really interesting, like emergent complexity, these kind of discrete patterns that combine and create bigger patterns and create bigger patterns. There was something very special about it. I saw that and it just connected with how I see the world and how I see the way things could be. It was a nice mirror for kind of how I think. And if we go back to my genomics class now through all of the stress, the first time I saw, you know, a simple script being demoed, I got that same feeling. So like, yes, it was a stressful class, but there was something there that was very, very special that clicked with me at a very, very deep level. After that, I kind of forgot about coding for a while, though remembering that that little kernel was really cool. In 2015, after talking with you quite a handful of times while you're writing code on the treadmill, I decided to do it again. And I took the intro CS class 106A. And this time around, I was worried that I was that the class was going to be too fast and all of that. And I wasn't going to have the time because I was a busy graduate student, all of those things. So what I decided to do was a few weeks out from the beginning of the class, just start going through some of the YouTube lectures and going through some of the problem sets, like old problem sets I could find, things like that, just just to kind of prepare me, just to make me a little more comfortable, to make me a little bit more familiar with the class. And that's seriously what made all the difference. You know, so a few weeks in, like this was the big, big pivotal point for me that literally changed my life trajectory. The problem set was basically write Atari breakout using their, you know, simple Java graphics library. And I remember receiving the assignment, and this is this was not long after doing, you know, the the simple kind of Carol the robot fun exercises in the very beginning. And then, you know, here's Atari Breakout. And I, I remember looking at the the spec sheet and just thinking, like, how am I going to do this? Like this is so, 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 so complicated. It was so complicated, in fact, that the that the standard um, you know, decompose the problem into actionable pieces, that was even too complicated. And so what I decided to do was I was going to just solve a simpler and related problem just to kind of get some momentum going. I remember this was, uh, it was early afternoon. And so I said, okay, let's see. Can I get just the canvas to appear on the computer screen and nothing else? And, you know, yeah, that worked. Good. Okay, can I get the canvas to appear and the ball? And the ball doesn't do anything. It's just in the center, just static. Okay. And okay, that works. Okay, can I do that, but then make the ball move one pixel? Okay, I did. That worked. Okay, great. Now, can I make the ball move all the way to the wall and then stop? And so it was that on and on and on again until I started to have some semblance of an Atari breakout going. I remember looking up from my laptop after having kind of played around with this for a while. And it's like the sun had gone down and I hadn't even noticed. Like my room was pitch black, except for the computer monitor. I had a bunch of missed calls and everything was a mess, but I had 
solve the problem. It's like I had some semblance of Atari breakout going on the computer. I didn't think that would have ever been possible. And, you know, the amount of joy I felt in that moment, I, I just had this feeling of like, wow, you know, I, I haven't been this absorbed in anything <laughs> as far as I can remember. And so I said, well, I, I think I want to do a bit more of this down the line. And so that was the big turning point. I said that, I mean, imagine going from like, you know, genomics class and thinking, okay, coding is not for me to, wow, this is definitely something that I would like to do for a career. Here's where it gets kind of interesting because I was just doing the, the, the computer science stuff evenings and weekends for funsies. Like I didn't think it was going to fit into my graduate school stuff because I was doing this totally unrelated wet lab thing, you know, for a systems biology project. So it's like, that's relevant, but I, I couldn't find a way to make a connection. But there was one day, so a few, a few years after I had started going through these computer science classes, where I was looking at my data and I had two uh, TSNA maps. So they're kind of ways to visualize high dimensional data in low, dimension, in, in low dimensions. Um, and it was this whole deal where like one of them was colored a little bit darker than the other kind of signifying parts of the map, you know, signifying basically a, a change in a particular cell type corresponding to some treatment that the cells got. And it was one of those deals where if, if you look at the map side by side, you could barely, barely see it. And I wanted a way to kind of overlay the two maps so I could kind of show the visualization a little better. What I realized was that, and, and this was, you know, a, after talking to a couple of my my colleagues, there was a solution where you could take the two TSNA maps and not, you know, superimpose them on, on Photoshop or GIMP or something, but more like take the data, the two data sets, concatenate them, take each cell's K nearest neighbors, and then use that cell as a basically a proxy for the K nearest neighbors of the concatenated data set. You're finding the difference between condition two and condition one for the K nearest neighbors of that cell and then coloring that cell and then doing that for all of the cells. And that would do it, right? But then I said, well, okay, hold on. I've been doing this whole coding thing for a while. I can actually implement this. And so it was a Friday and I remember just going home and, and like, I couldn't tell you how much coffee I drank that weekend, but I had a working prototype on Monday, sent it to my PI. I said, hey, I, you know, I solved the T-snake comparison problem. That was what we were calling it because it, I wasn't the only person who wanted to do this. Our data, our technology was so new that there was just a lot of stuff that hadn't been done yet. And this was one of the big ones. And I remember my my PI, Gary Nolan, he's he wrote back, you know, he's not a very expressive person. You know, he won't say, oh my gosh, fantastic, amazing. And I remember him writing back and saying, okay, this is, this is amazing. And it, it was the first time in, in, I was a fifth year, it was the first time, you know, since my entire time in the Nolan lab that he had said that something I had done was amazing. And so that was just kind of more signal that, you know, I should probably be going this direction. And then, you know, that kind of kicked off the final chapter of my thesis. You know, the last nine months of my six years at Stanford is basically what the vast majority of people remember me for. Like they don't remember the four and a half, five year project, like what that project that I started with. That gets me to the very end. And at the end of my PhD thesis, I was basically equipped to be a bioinformatician. 
but not in the classical sense, but more in the hybrid sense. Up until the age of 28, I was doing web lab stuff and now I know how to code. And now I can say, okay, I can tell you what algorithms are relevant of the 120 to choose from for a given problem that you have to solve because I can speak both the wet lab and the dry lab languages. And that set me up for my career as a life sciences consultant, which, I, which was another unexpected turn. To, to get into that, my last year in graduate school, so this was 2016. This was around the time where housing prices were going through the roof and things were just getting really, 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 really expensive. And I, I didn't have very much cash and I needed to do something about that. And I remember, I remember visiting my uncle and aunt in Michigan. One of them's a professor, one of them's a consultant. And at the time I was saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking to go back into, you know, some of the stuff I, I did, I used to do a long time ago. It's like a, I was a certified personal trainer. I was looking to, you know, go back into that because I, I really needed extra money. And, and I remember them telling me like, well, don't you like write code and you, you know, a bunch of stuff, you know, in your domain, like, can't you be a consultant for companies on the side or something like that? And I said, no, no, I'm not nearly good enough to be a consultant. I don't know anything. And they said, yeah, you do. Just be a consultant. And I said, okay, okay, I'll try. I'll try. I'll, I'll, I'll try. And so I went back and I didn't, you know, I thought of it as, as a total pipe dream. I, I'm not good enough to be a consultant. I've only been coding for a couple of years. And, you know, it's like I'm a fifth year graduate student. And then, you know, so I'm sitting in the lab one day, typing away on the laptop and, uh, to my left, one of the former one of my one of the former PhD students who kind of went on to work as the head of bioinformatics at a startup that came out of our lab was visiting the lab again. And it turned out that she was leaving to get a job at a bigger company. And so she needed to bring in some consultants to fill in for uh, you know some of the serious gaps that the company would have upon her departure. And I heard her say, Oh, I'm looking for we're looking for some consultants to help out. And I, I ran over and I said, you're looking for some consultants. I, I, I know a thing or two. I, I can help out. And that, that kind of kicked it off. She said, okay, like, this is great. Why don't I put you in contact with the CEO and you'll you go interview with him. And I remember going down the Mountain View, sitting across from the, from the CEO. I remember him saying, look, you're a fifth year PhD student. So you haven't graduated. You don't have a ton of experience. And we're a very small company on a tight budget. So I'm not going to be able to give you very much money. And I thought, okay, you know, that's fine. And he said, yeah, so we're only going to be able to give you, you know, this much per hour. And it was, you know, consultant rate, which are much, 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 much higher than anything a PhD or, or a postdoc would get per hour. And I just remember, you know, hearing the number and thinking, oh my goodness gracious. Like I didn't, I didn't know that amount of money was possible. Like I, I seriously didn't think I'd be making that much money at the end of my career, and I was just a you know fifth year PhD student or whatever. So anyway, I took the job, and after I got my first paycheck from them, I said, "Okay, this is this is real. Like this this is possible. I'm doing literally the same thing, if not like an easier version of what I'm doing in the lab, and I'm getting like so much more money for this. I might actually be able to do intellectually stimulating and interesting work and get paid." a good deal of money for it. I didn't know if both of those things would be compatible, to be honest with you. 
When you described your first experiences and getting into programming, you described three experiences that really resonated with me. The first one was that immense joy, that satisfaction, that, oh my goodness, I did this, that you got from being immersed in work that gives you what we call this sense of flow. The second yes. is this realization all of a sudden that because you know even basic programming, you are empowered to do something. You're empowered to build something and you can actually make give your ideas life. And I, I think that's something yes. that I fell in love with too. And the third, I think, is a really good method for approaching a problem, and that is breaking it down into these tiny pieces, each of which is relatively simple. But then when you put them together, this complexity emerges. When that happens, as happened in your story, it really does feel like magic. So I have a question that maybe is too philosophical, but do you see any kind of connections between biology and programming? Actually, yeah. When I wrote my thesis, I remember that I think the very first sentence is something about how we're all a bunch of, you know, evolving genetic algorithms that are iterating through time over billions of years to produce, you know, intelligent life. And what I can tell you is that, you know, when I think about biology now, I think about it through a computational lens. When I'm thinking about genomics and thinking about, you know, string, string manipulation and Turing machines. And when I think about evolution, I think I'm thinking about like genetic algorithms and, you know, non-convex optimizations. To answer your question, absolutely. I, you know, I think of, if we, if we really want to get philosophical here, I, I think of, you know, the computer science toolkit is almost like thinking tools to kind of help you describe some of these extremely complicated processes. When I think about cell signaling pathways, I, you know, I, after I learned graph theory and like random walks, cell signaling pathways are kind of more easy to understand now. They're, they're a heck of a lot more confusing, but that's because I realized that, you know, it's more complicated than that. Wherever I am, whatever it is, it's more complicated than that. But now I can use graph theory as kind of a backdrop for understanding that. And I haven't really talked to anyone about about this. I'm going to write an article on this at some point, but if you go all the way back to like Plato, like the Greeks, they use geometry as uh, as thinking tools. So, so far as I understand, you'll have to double check this, but Plato's Academy, I think you had to know geometry to get in. And I, you kind of see it in the, in the, the philosophical text. You, you see evidence of like geometric thinking, you see, you know, arguments and propositions and proofs. And so I think that every biologist should learn computer science kind of for the same reason. It helps you think. It really does. Even if you're not going to use it, even if chat GPT is going to, you know, automate some huge chunk of, of the coding that we do down the line, I'm still going to do it because it's, it's just like, it's like geometry to Plato. It, it just, it engages my brain. It gives me tools with which I can, you know, look at biology and better inquire into its mystery. 
Oh gosh, chat GPT, that is an entire other conversation that we could have. I will just leave it here for now. So I have two follow-up questions. You mentioned writing an article and I wanted to point this out. So Tyler, I've noticed over the years, so you write in your blog and we'll share the link with our listeners in the show notes and you present things with story and beautiful metaphor. And I sort of suspect that you use writing and thinking about ideas in this way as a vehicle for your expression, for your learning. So I'm wondering if we step back a little bit, what role does this writing process take in your work and your growth and learning? Oh man. So writing is something that I've started to do quite a bit more, especially since the beginning of the pandemic. Like I think with the first lockdown, I was doing a lot of reading and then I think the second lockdown and you know, up until now, I've been doing a lot of writing. You know, one of the reasons why I write, so what am I now, 36, going on 37, March 21st. And I've kind of made this switch in my life where rather than thinking of myself as kind of computing away from childhood, I kind of see myself as computing toward death or toward the end of my life. And so there's this, this, there's this idea, or there's this question of like, you know, if I died tomorrow, would all my ideas, you know, be out there? And what I'm trying to do with writing and what I'm trying to do with my website is to be able to say yes. So I have 800, I looked this up just yesterday. I checked the total number of words. I've written 818,000 words in a private journal that goes back to 2009. And then I have like a pen and paper journal that goes a little bit farther back from there. So probably close to a million words in total. But that was all kind of kept to myself. And there's a, you know, a lot of it is just kind of random stuff. But every once in a while, I'll I'll come across, uh, like if I really critically examine what I've written over the years, there's ideas that just kind of come up over and over again. And this is something that like, you know, my limited human memory wouldn't tell you. You literally have to go in and, and like kind of examine what you've written. And so I I just kind of came to the realization that a lot of the stuff needs to be out there. I want to be able to leave something that the next generation can kind of pick up on and build off of. And there was this kind of block of like, well, I don't really have any good ideas. Like I'm, I'm no Socrates. Like I don't, I don't have anything profound to say, but you know, it turns out that it's like, we all kind of approach life from a slightly different angle. We like people who code, we've all kind of worked on slightly different projects and we've all solved a slightly different set of problems. It's less about being more profound and better and all all this kind of comparison stuff is kind of toxic in my opinion. I think it's a product of you know, like undergrad and in like high school training where it's like, I did better than you on the test or whatever. I think it's more about having your own angle and being like unique and then like putting that out there. So I guess the first step is realizing that you do have something to say because you do have an angle that nobody else does. And then the second step is is just putting it out there. So I, I wrote an article that kind of it kind of kicked everything off. It's called Just Paint. This is a pretty important story. So my aunt, you know, the same one who was who was prodding me back in the day to 
start consulting. So, you know, she, she knows what she's talking about. I, I really listen when she, when she talks. So she, she and my uncle went on a sabbatical to India and she's, she's quite the artist. And so she said, you know, she brought, she brought all of her painting supplies and said, okay, I'm going to just paint. I'm going to go around and I'm going to paint everything that I see. But, you know, whenever she got started, she would say, you know, the color palette isn't right. And, you know, the scene isn't quite what I want it to be. It would be much better if I was over there. And, you know, like she would come up with excuses not to do it. And so so this was like a, a multi-month sabbatical. They were there for a long time. And toward the end, she kind of realized that she doesn't really have any paintings, right? She was going to be a prolific painter and paint India. Um, she didn't have anything. And so it wasn't until the very end that she just kind of started painting. And her mantra just became, just paint, just paint. You know, that's something that she would tell me every time I would be hesitant to, you know, do whatever the next thing is, you know, the, with respect to my company and everything else, it moves real fast. And so I'm always like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. She just says, you know, just paint. And so when it came to, to writing articles, I was kind of nervous about putting myself out there. But then I remembered the story and then I, I started with just paint. Like that was the first article, the first big article I wrote that kind of kicked off the rest of them. Plenty of people have studied the benefits of writing to help you think. And, and you know, all of that's obviously true, um, you know, as evidenced by the, you know, one million words I've written privately. But I, I think I think you really got to put yourself out there. I think I think you have to write. I think everyone should have a public, some sort of public facing blog where they just write about the things they find interesting projects they're passionate about, ideas that they, ideas they find interesting, questions that they have. I, I like blogs more than I like, you know, posting to Twitter or anything like that. Someone on Hacker News recently kind of coined it high velocity media, <laughs> which is basically, you know, you, you, you post like a one sentence thing and then it goes into the void. I, I think a lot of the good ideas, at least on my end, come from just sitting down and, you know, really clarifying my thoughts in in kind of longer form. I've kind of jumped around a little bit in terms of my motivation to write, but in general, it's it's been you know like when I when I transitioned from wet lab to coding, going from writing only privately to like writing publicly and maintaining a website, which again is is a pretty recent transition. I think that's also been a very kind of profound thing. One of the things that I'm going to consider probably later in life to be like one of the critical kind of pivotal points. And I hope this is, I'm kind of thinking in the long term here. So, you know, for example, my, my website, it's, you know, GitHub pages, it's plain text, static. It's, it's all things that are going to last longer than, you know, the, the kind of flashy GIF laden, whatever stuff that you see. I have this idea that when I'm like, you know, 70 years old, if I make it that far, that my website's still going to be the same. It's just going to have tons and tons and tons of articles. And hopefully the more articles I write, the more clear they're going to be, the more interesting ideas I'm going to have, the, the more I'll be able to kind of clarify the ideas. Oh, and that's another thing. I was really inspired by, like, there's a, there's a society called the Society of Long Now. They're somewhere in Northern California. 
and they're kind of thinking on thinking in much much longer terms like on the you know thousand to ten thousand year time scales and you get that kind of thing sometimes in like in sci-fi so the idea is rather than being like a kind of conventional blogger who's trying to get attention or whatever and posting a blog oh i just posted to my blog come check out my blog and like it or whatever the way i'm doing it is i'm actually like the articles are actually kind of dynamically changing like there's one i wrote called the scrolling problem and like i started it i think maybe 6 months ago and so what i have at the bottom of the article is the date but it's actually a date range it's like i that i've been working on and revising the article for the last 6 months and i might continue revising the article for another 10 years as new ways to scroll are invented that kind of scrambles our brain and all that. Yeah, you should check out the article. It's pretty cool. But that's the other thing that I want to be able to do that like when I'm 70 years old, the articles that I have on my website now, they're still going to be there but they they're probably going to be a lot different because I will have been refining them for decades. Not because I want people to like them on, you know, whatever social media but but just for the sake of clarifying my thoughts and just having quality stuff that will outlive me. I've had this idea since like 2016 of a living document and it's really kind of anti-publication. It's you know, I would look at this publication that was like burned into a PDF that would, you know, be forever like that unless there was I don't know a, a change to the actual paper and I'd be like, well, yeah. is this really how the world works? No, of course it's not. Things change. The state of a hypothesis changes. The way that I think about something changes. So we we shouldn't be using these very static, you know, hard-coded things. We should have living documents, things that over time change. And of course, an interesting kind of extension to that is well, if you have a living document, you'd want to be able to understand how it changes over time. So how how has this what we know about this question, this hypothesis in the world, how has that changed? How has my perspective changed because, you know, people I feel like we change pretty drastically every 10 years in terms of our personality or maybe some yeah. of our values. It's a really interesting idea that applies to not just like publication but also just ourselves. That's beautiful and yeah, what I can tell you is that from looking at some of my older journal entries you know the ones from like 2010 like pre you know when i'm in my early 20s what i can tell you is like when i think back and i you know, i've always thought i had a good episodic memory but you know what i what i learned from examining my older writings is that there are quite a lot of things that i've that i forgotten and you know sometimes you see the past through rose colored glasses and then you you look at journal entries from that date and they're like oh huh I was actually pretty unhappy around this time or sometimes the opposite where like you're you're kind of fixated on this this one bad thing that happened and it's like oh huh actually kind of like before and after that thing was pretty good times and just that one little bad thing was a small little blip you know a big part of I'd say this part of my life has been finally letting go of the you know I I used to be so proud of my of my episodic memory and and just kind of letting go and saying no 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 it's like i know enough about the brain now and i know enough from just kind of rationally examining my journal entries that no no my memory's not perfect not at all like we have all kinds of biases and it's kind of a beautiful thing when you look back and you say oh huh when you when you find out that you were wrong about something like i used to not like that because you know it's like i had a big ego and all of that stuff but now it's like i'm i'm always happy to be wrong it's like I think, you know, it kind of dovetails back into 
working as a developer because one of the transitions for me was going from, so like when I write some code and then there's a bug and there's an error message or whatever. I remember when that started, I would feel so angry, like, you know, I've been working so hard on this. What's going on? The computer doesn't like me. The computer says no. Uh. And then at some point it's like, I, I transitioned to like, okay, let's figure this out. That's actually one of the things like debugging code is, is actually one of the things that triggers the flow state again, to go back to that. Because basically you're getting like rapid fire, you're doing like rapid fire experiments and getting immediate feedback as to whether you're right or wrong. And so, and then you kind of slowly chisel out like the path to where the problem was. And then when it shows up, I remember I was debugging some code. I had, a, I was mentoring a high school student at the very end of, of graduate school. Cause that's an, another thing I was known for is like mentoring undergrads, high school students. I think I had like seven or eight total. So it's like, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't mess around. Um, I'm really proud of it. But anyway, I remember I was, I went into the, I, I was in the conference room writing code to do some of the bioinformatic analysis that went into the end of my thesis. And I'm, and all the while I'm, I'm kind of talking through it to this high school student who's sitting there. She doesn't really know how any of it works, but so I have to explain it to a high school student while I'm doing it, which I think clarified a lot of my thoughts, which I think led to a better thesis. But the point is, I was kind of debugging code with her so she could kind of see what that looks like. I remember there was, it was right before lunch. And like, I remember when the bug revealed itself, like when I finally found out what it was, and it was this thing where it was, when it became obvious, it just like, it was like, there was like heavenly light emanating from line 37 or whatever. And I remember just looking at it and saying, oh my goodness. And then, you know, I turned to her and I said, line, line 37, this, this, and this. And then I just change it and then it works. And then we, we go to lunch and I just, but I just remember it's like that kind of, that feeling of insight, like you've discovered something, a little bit of a, a uh, little bit of a tangent. I absolutely right. love that. And then the heavens opened and it was line 37. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so right. I, I really appreciate you sharing this perspective. There's a couple things to unwrap. The first is something I've noticed over the years. I think there's something around, I don't know, developer experience or maturity, if you want to call it, with respect to debugging. I've noticed that maybe people earlier in their career when something doesn't work, I guess there's two tendencies. One, there's a tendency to get upset or angry, right? You go, oh, why are you broken? Bang, 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 banging the keyboard even maybe sometimes. Uh, but then there's also this tendency to like copy paste the error and like give it to someone else and be like, oh, this is broken, like fix it. And I think as you mature oh, as a developer, God. you start to realize that you're empowered to figure out what went wrong. And you also realize that you kind of enjoy, you get flow from this debugging experience. So then you actually start reading the messages. I can't remember when this happened to me. It was probably, I started programming in 2008-ish, uh, right, right mm. after I graduated college. So I think probably early on, I would see an error message just kind of like flow down my screen and kind of just get overwhelmed. But at some point I was like, you know, 
maybe, maybe I should read this. Like not that error messages are great and they always tell you exactly what's going on, but it could be this, this little hint that helps me kind of dive into this, this mystery, this investigation. And when, and when it became more sort of like a little game that you play of trying to, trying to uncover the problem and find the thing on line 37, it actually got quite fun. But to step back, I've noticed, as, as I mentioned earlier, that I think this isn't sort of an obvious realization. I think that a lot of people that start learning to program, the first instinct when something doesn't work is to feel that frustration. And over time, it, it morphs into something else. And maybe that, that something else tends to vary depending on who you are. Yeah, I do have something to say about that. I remember that now, now that I really think about this, the most, the most often where I would feel like, you know, the kind of rage at the error message was when I was doing a problem set that was due in two days and I had a million other things going on. And can't this thing just work so I can like move on to this thing and start planning this experiment and like, you know, make some dinner and whatever else. When it became fun was when that kind of lifted, when I was doing stuff that wasn't problem sets. So when I was doing my, you know, the final chapter of my thesis is kind of unbounded. It's like, I get done what I get done and we'll see what happens, but it's my thing. It's not something that I have to turn in and I'm going to get a grade on it or anything else. That was kind of a really pivotal thing for me. In fact, to go on another tangent here, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was like, when I was doing the first problem sets in, in CS106A, we go all the way back to like the Carol the Robot one. So like, this is the very beginning. You have that little grid and you have the little like robot thing that's built like the Apple from the computer from the 80s. And you can make it move and you can make it rotate and you can make it pick up and put down beepers. So the problem sets were pretty interesting and they were like silly little puzzles that taught you the basic programming concepts. But after, you know, because I was doing this evenings and weekends for funsies and because I had done all of that prep work and became a bit more comfortable. After the problems that I would just kind of do little extra things for fun, I would just kind of tinker around a little bit. And what I can tell you is that I kind of vaguely remember the things I did from on the problem sets with respect to Carol the Robot and the other stuff. But the things I did outside of the problem sets, like the kind of extra credit, not doing this for a grade, not doing this for anything except for my intellectual curiosity, those are the things that like were etched into my brain forever. One of them was, so if we go back to Carol the Robot, I was telling you, I, I was in, I've been into cellular automata, like Conway's Game of Life since I was 16. And I managed to, to program Carol the Robot to do what's called Langton's Ant, which is like another one of those things where, you know, it's like if Carol moves forward and there's a beeper to the left and there's a beeper underneath, then turn to the right and move. Like it's, it's another kind of set of rules that creates emergent complexity. And, you know, it's like it didn't work the first time, didn't work the second time, all of that. But it was like, I, I didn't care because it's like, I'm just, I'm just doing this for fun. I'm doing this because I want to. There's a very particular personality, I think, that wants to just kind of do things, you know, do new stuff for, for its own sake for the sake of intellectual curiosity as opposed to doing something because everyone else is doing it and I'm going to do it better than everybody else. That's a different personality. That's not my personality. So I don't really think of it as, as like a developmental change for me 
as much as it was like transitioning from like high pressure, I'm doing the thing that everyone else is and I have to do it better than everyone else so I can get the better grade. Transitioning from that to I'm intellectually interested in what will happen if I change the rules of this cellular automata in this way that no one else has done, but I can implement it because I'm empowered because I know how to code. So I'm going to do it. Oops, there's an error. Met. I don't care. Like, cool. Let's figure this out. Like, this is fun. I'm doing this for fun. That, that's how it's been for me. I can totally relate to that. So I was a psychology major in college, but if you go way back to my, my first couple of years, I actually took the start of an intro to programming course and I didn't get it. I didn't like it. Didn't make any sense why I'd want to do that. And I abandoned it. I said, this is, this makes no sense to me. And it wasn't until after I graduated college and I was working on something that was a problem that I wanted to solve. And then also a bunch of other little stupid things like sending emails with MATLAB and uh, making, doing, I used to do problems on, of the week from NPR in Python. Cause I, you know, someone showed me Python and I was like, oh, this is super cool. And nice. it kind of makes me step back and think like the way that we are taught programming in school. So a traditional computer science programming where it's, you know, high intensity, especially at Stanford and stressful and focused on getting you into sort of a big tech job. And it's it's less about solving kind of fun problems that you care about. And it's it's more of this kind of stressful state. Maybe the, the way that we're teaching people, we're introducing people to program is wrong or not to say that it's wrong, but maybe for particular kinds of people, it might not be the best approach. And it, it, it gives me pause because I'm like, what if I never had just kind of decided one day to kind of tinker down this path and try out programming and then fall in love with it. Like, what would my life have been like? So just something that I, I think about a lot. In a, in a more general sense. So an undergrad I took, so I, I wasn't doing CS yet, but I was doing, I was doing some hard classes. Like, you know, I was doing the OCHEM, the physics, all the biology stuff. And what I could tell you is that this issue with CS maybe being potentially taught in, in not the best way for everyone or for a certain set of personalities, I think it can be expanded to quite a bit more. For example, chemistry was terrible because, you know, they, these are these are the so-called weeder classes where lecture hall of 500 people gets cut in half or whatever, like through the chemistry series or, or whatever it's supposed to be. And so it's, you know, it's this kind of cutthroat, like you, you have to kind of know everything and you have to kind of be objectively better than your peers, but you're also studying with them too. So that's kind of weird. It, it wasn't fun. I didn't want to look at my, my Oakham textbook after I was, you know, done with the three classes. But after undergrad, like after I wasn't anymore in that kind of pressure cooker, it became fun. Like now chemistry is pretty cool. Same, same with physics. Like physics was really tough when I was doing it for a grade, but now it's fun. And so I, I have this idea, you know, sometimes I think, well, what if I had just, you know, taken CS earlier, I'd be so much more experienced now. And I would have, you know, realized my passion at 18 instead of 28. But I think that's not true. Because I think had I taken CS 106A as an undergrad, I think I would have been in the same kind of boat where it would be too fast for me. I would have burnt out. I would have just not wanted to write a single script for the rest of my life. You know, it's, that's, that's, that's kind of when I, when I look back. And, and I don't know if that's because I wasn't ready for it or if it's just because 
that's the way a lot of learning is. If you go back to, I mean, actually, I don't know if this is objectively true. I'm going to have to look back at this, but I know that I think if you go back to the, the Greeks again, it wasn't lecture hall of 500 people being weeded out with midterms every three weeks. I, I think it was like more mentor mentee. And I got a sense of this, you know, I, I, I got a feel for how well this works when I, when I had my summer students, you know, I would have like, you know, I, again, I had seven or eight in total, but I, I would have, you know, somewhere between one and four at a given time. And that was like the perfect size because I could pay attention and understand and keep track of everybody's mental state at the same time and know how they're progressing and realize that one of my summer students was a cat. You know, she just kind of wanted to get the material, go off on her own, do it, come back. And then, you know, another one of my summer students was was the opposite of that, was much more of a people person. And so I had I had him, who was an undergrad, work with and lead another one who was a high school student. And that worked. And so it was like all these really subtle things that you couldn't, that a, that a professor or a TA or whoever couldn't possibly keep track of in a lecture hall of 500 people, you know, on a quarter system where you have midterms every three weeks. I think kind of overall, I can't think of a solution right now that would allow everyone to kind of learn the required amounts of things in the timely manner that it takes. But so this is a problem with, I think, yeah, with the way we learn. And, and luckily, I think the PhD kind of allowed me to learn in the right way. I read about this too. Like when I got started getting good at computer science, and again, the things that really got etched in my brain were kind of solving problems that I was interested in solving on my own. And I think, you know, in a, in a perfect world, if I look back at everything I did in undergrad, ideally it would be something like that, right? where you're, you're solving problems that you're interested in and you're just kind of slowly like chiseling your way into a field as opposed to having it all shoved down your throat in, you know, 10 weeks. But again, this does take longer. And I mean, this is something I'm going to have to think about a little bit more because, you know, as I get older, it's like, it's almost inevitable that at some point I'm going to be teaching, not necessarily as a professor because I left academia and everything, but it's like, I'm starting to feel this like sense of responsibility. Like as I've kind of become more experienced and I know more stuff and I go around the world and I, I see people who know less stuff and, you know, I, I feel, and then obviously I see people who know more stuff, but to the people who know less stuff, like the people who are just kind of starting out first year PhD student, where it's like, I've been there and I have some things I can, I can say. It's like, I, I feel with every passing year of gaining more experience and career capital and whatever you want to call it, just like a, a growing sense of responsibility to give back and to teach. Um, and this kind of circles back to, to why I write. It would be a shame if I if I learned a lot and had a lot of ideas and had a lot of wisdom and never really shared it to anybody. Like maybe, I don't know, if I, I would tell my, my kids or my nephew or whoever, you, you never know who's going to benefit from, you know, what you have to say. And so again, just paint. I totally agree about that transition between undergraduate and graduate where the learning process changed. I guess to play devil's advocate, though, I, when I look back, to go back to sort of our personal blogs, I've been writing in a, a blog since 2007, so I was in college. 
you could look at the undergraduate experience as trying to kind of also move toward this goal of knowledge and learning and career. But when I look back at what I was writing when I was that young, so my my early 20s, I was someone that was struggling to understand myself, to understand the world, really. And it kind of gives me pause because it makes me realize that at least for me, college wasn't about getting a skill set. I I did almost nothing that was useful in college, but it was more so learning about myself. And also when you look at that transition that most people take from, you know, living with their parents to then being independent, it's learning how to take care of yourself. It's learning how you like to interact with people and how you like to learn. And I think even if we maybe gave that PhD experience to undergrads, which wouldn't be scalable, obviously, but, you know, theoretically, I don't think it would have the same effect as the same person, you know, five to 10 years later, just because of that thing. Hey, listeners. So Tyler and I talked for holy cow, two hours. And if you've noticed, we haven't even gotten to the part where he's left graduate school and started his career in consulting. So in the spirit of your attention span, we are going to split the rest of the interview into another episode Please join us next time as we talk about Tyler's career post-graduate school. Thanks for listening.